All right. Good morning, church. I'll just assume you're still all talking to each other. That's good. Good morning, church. There it is. I uh, know it's a good thing. It takes some time to, you know, say hello to everybody. Uh, that is fantastic. I love it. Uh, if we haven't met, maybe you're a guest this morning. I just want to say welcome to you. So thankful that you've chosen to join us. My name is Paul. I'm the teaching pastor here at Life Point Church. Again, so grateful uh, that you have joined us. Today, uh, we are in week four of a series uh, going through the book of Revelation. And we have uh, titled this series, New. Okay? It is a, uh, we have 10 weeks of content uh, in this series, and I will say there are 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, and so we're not going to get to all of it, uh, just as a, a warning. Um, but today we're going to be in chapter 5, and so if you can at least find chapter 5 in the book of Revelation, if you have a Bible with you, that's great. Uh, I also just want to say, if you don't have a Bible and you want one, um, let us know. We'd love to help you in the process of finding a good Bible that you can engage with and that you can read and that you can understand. The Bible is written for common people, just like me, just like you. And so if you need a Bible, let us know. We'd love to get that. If you don't have the scriptures, uh, we will have them on the screens for you here in a minute. Uh, but before we get to Revelation 5, what I actually want to do is sort of prime us in a sense um, and go through some Old Testament texts that point us toward um, who the Messiah is, who the Messiah was expected to be, okay? And, and the reason I want to spend some time doing that is because chapter 5 really centers around uh, Jesus, of course. We've said the book of Revelation, what it really means is the revealing of or the uncovering of, and namely, the book of Revelation is the revealing of Jesus, glorified Jesus, magnified, holy Jesus. And that's why we said the big idea, the main point of this series that is that the revelation is more about present hope than it is a future calendar. And I think sometimes we get caught up in that when we look at the book of Revelation. We want to try and piece all the future events together, and sometimes then we miss the point, which is to say Jesus is king. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is magnificent. And so all of that being said, I do want to take a little bit of time, and, and we're going to go through, again, some Old Testament prophecies that speak to who Jesus would be. Because I think in a New Testament context, when I say that, what I mean is after Jesus' death, resurrection, and then ascension into heaven, we sometimes lose and I think maybe miss the significance of who Jesus is. And so in the Old Testament, when you read, you'll see 400 verses that speak to and prophesy or foretell. Um, there's different uses of the word prophecy. They can mean current moment. It can be future as well. But foretell who this, who this Messiah would be. And if you're listening, you're like, well, I'm not really sure what Messiah means. The word Messiah just means anointed or chosen one. And so really from the beginning of time, God the Father had promised there would be an anointed chosen one and a, a Messiah who would save his people would establish this kingdom. And so when we say Jesus, when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus's last name. Christ is a title. The word Messiah and Christ are the same. It just means Jesus, the chosen, the anointed, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. And so all of that being said, throughout all of history, Old Testament Israel is looking forward to this future Messiah, the future chosen one. And I want to read some, some verses. Actually, I'm not going to read from here because I'm going to be all over the place. I'm going to read from my iPad because there's too many verses. Um, we're going to read about what they would have expected. So I'm going to proceed to read 400 verses to you from the Old Testament. <laughs> you know, that doesn't sound like a good idea. All right, I'll just read like 10. 
okay? We'll, we'll settle with 10. It's probably going to feel like 400. Um, Genesis 3.15, okay? All the way back in the beginning, after sin has entered into the world, man has fallen short of the glory of God, has, has sinned, right? Adam and Eve, this is what God says right at the beginning. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And here's the messianic prophecy, we call it. Uh, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a first promise. There will be one who will destroy the enemy. Bruise his head, that means to crush his head. And yet this anointed one will be bruised himself. He will be crucified. Excuse me, crucified. That's Genesis 3.15. Now, Genesis 49.10 uh, and again, we're looking at these sort of out of context, but you get the point. Genesis 49.10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. And so in the immediate context, uh, we have sort of talking through who the different tribes of Israel would become, the 12 tribes of Israel, but here we get this messianic future prophecy of, of one where all people would be obedient to him. And so in their minds, they're thinking, okay, we're going to have this future Savior, this future Messiah. He's going to be powerful. He's going to be mighty. He's going to lead this nation. Numbers 24, 17, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, again, this staff that sort of represents authority, kingly rule. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It will crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. You get into the context, Moab had been oppressing Israel. Not good. And so wait, this, this future Messiah would crush our enemies. Let's go, right? That's what they're, they're excited about that. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his, in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is righteousness. You have an immediate fulfillment within this, and then you have an ultimate fulfillment of this. You have David, his son Solomon, but ultimately this is pointing toward Jesus, the ultimate ruler, the ultimate king. Again, continuing on, I said it would feel like 400 verses, but we've only read like six so far, okay? So, Chapter 9 of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has some of the most just incredible, profound prophecies about who the Messiah would be. Verses 6 and 7, he says, For us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, come on, right? That's got to make you excited. If you're, if you're an Old Testament believer in God, you're like, this is coming. This is our Messiah. This is our hope. This one right here. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he, was he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amazing. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth, lived perfectly, and was crucified. This was promised about him. And so now I want to sort of challenge us to get into the mindset, say it's AD 30, okay? 
and you hear about this Jesus. And you've got all of these prophecies in mind. You're like, yeah, I know Isaiah 53. It speaks of something called a suffering servant. But did you see all those other ones about a conquering king? And we've got Rome oppressing you. There's injustice. You're in, a, you're in your own land, but you're not free. And what would you be thinking? I want that conquering king. I want the one with the scepter in his hand. I want the one who's going to destroy all the enemies. I want the one who's going to be powerful, who's going to be mighty. Makes sense, doesn't it? Let's just be honest with ourselves. That was the expectation of Jesus. And in a sense, rightly so, given all of these prophecies, and in a sense, not rightly so, because they ultimately missed who Jesus was and so many rejected Jesus because he came, but not in the way that they wanted or expected. And so all of these promises about a future kingdom, all of these, these ultimate promises, the question is, well, are they fulfilled? Are they not fulfilled? And what I would say to that is already and not yet. One of the tensions of the scripture Yes, Jesus, when he was here in his earthly ministry, he already established a kingdom. Time and time again, when we read in the New Testament, what you see is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What that means is that Jesus did and has and is presently ruling over a kingdom, but it's a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. And you and I, through faith in Christ, we are citizens of that spiritual kingdom today. Today, through faith, Jesus is our king. Amen? Amen. Amen. That is good, good news. And so, while the kingdom is already in the sense of a spiritual kingdom where Jesus is the ruler, Jesus is the king, there is the not yet of the future kingdom that will be on earth, the new heavens, the new earth, a thousand-year kingdom. You look at this in the future of the book of Revelation. There's many different interpretations there, but the main point is that one day there will be an earthly kingdom. One day there will be all of these promises that have come to be. Now, that's an excessive amount of front-loading, okay? <laughs> I understand that. But what I want to do this morning is just sort of prime our minds to what we're about to read because I think it is so critical. And as, as we remember that Jesus has already established a heavenly kingdom, he has not yet established his earthly kingdom. And we're going to hold those two things in tension because what we're about to read, church... All of history has been pointing to this moment. And that's a really, really big deal. All right, so what we read last week in chapter 4, we opened up and, and John the Apostle, I know I'm still not into the text, I'm sorry, but John the Apostle, he gets this invitation into heaven. He looks up, sees a, I, I don't know, maybe a white cumulonimbus cloud with an open door, and he goes up into heaven. Jesus invites him into heaven. And there he sees a throne and one seated on the throne and the one seated on the throne is God the Father. And there are these four creatures who are worshiping God and they're saying, holy, 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 over and over and over again. And then when we see he's, they're, they're singing these, these songs of worship, there are 24 elders also surrounding God's throne. And when the, the angels or when the, the creatures, excuse me, sing their song, the angels bow down and they worship as well. And these 24 elders, these 24 elders are representative of believers. Whether you believe, excuse me, it's New Testament and Old Testament believers combined or just New Testament, the point is believers are worshiping God the Father on the throne. And that's the context within which we now get to this point, which again, all of history has been pointing toward. 
because of what we're about to see, and I just don't want to understate that. So with that being said, finally, uh, we're going to get into chapter 5. I'm going to go to the Lord first in prayer because we always need it. And so let's pray, then let's dig into the text here, okay? Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to gather. Thank you that you teach us, um, that you don't just leave us to guess, but you, you want us to have a confident assurance of who you are. So God, as we open your word, would you open it to us? Would you give us understanding by the power of your spirit? We can't do that on our own. I can't do this on my own. I need you this morning, Lord, please use me as an instrument in your hands to glorify you and to teach your word faithfully. I love you. I trust you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 5. Again, we know the scene. We know the setting. Here's what happens next. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one on heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, again, God the Father on the throne in his right hand, which is an important detail. The right hand symbolizes power and authority. In his right hand is this scroll. And then what we hear is an angel saying, who is worthy to open the scroll, to break the seals, to look into it, and all of heaven and all of earth, and no one says, I am no one is worthy, no one is able to take and open this scroll of God, which then I think brings up a really important question. What's the scroll, right? What is this scroll? And what we're going to see is over the next 14 chapters, this scroll is really going to be the catalyst that moves God's plan for redemption, for restoration, and for his future kingdom forward. This scroll is a centerpiece, really, again, from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19 as these seals are open, and with each seal, what we're going to see is the wrath of God are really poured out upon the earth. And so then you must ask, well, what is the scroll? Why is it so important? Why is it so special? Well, as usual, there are many different views. And I know I say that every week, but that's just the nature of the book of Revelation. So I want to give you a few of them and then hopefully get us to the point Okay, these, this, this scroll, some would say, represents the complete will of God. Right? Some would say that this is the, the ultimate, total, and complete will of God that very well could be, but it says that no one is worthy, but I think God has communicated his will to us very clearly. Some would, would say uh, that this scroll is a title deed to the earth. Right? That in, this, in God's hand is a title deed that says, Here, son, here is your inheritance. Here is your possession that I promised you, for example, in Psalm 2. Right? Here is all of the kingdoms of the earth. Here is everything. Here it is. And then there's a process that happens to go about opening that. Some would say that this is the sealed up scroll of Daniel from chapter 12. This vision that God had Daniel write down and then seal up for the end times. And that would make sense. And what you see is that several Old Testament prophets, as we sort of front-loaded, speak to this future reality. And so the view is that here represents the will, in a sense, or the, the deed to the conquering Messiah, the conquering king. Right? That's sort of the idea. That's sort of the concept. And then what we see is that, that John, he's weeping. Like, he's beside himself. Why? 
because no one has been found worthy to open this scroll. And so what that really tells us, I think, what that, that shows us is that somehow John sees this scroll as, as critical as it is to the future realization of all that God promised the Messiah would do. In this scroll, stick with me, seems to be, whether it's one of those three views that I said, the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's plan, the ultimate coming of God's eternal earthly kingdom. All of that seems wrapped up in this scroll, and John is beside himself because it seems as though that can't come to be. And he's wrecked. And that should affect us as well. Imagine all of these promises that we read about, and we did that for a reason, all of these promises that were talked about, imagine if those weren't somehow then going to come true. We wouldn't be able to make sense of the sorrow of today if we didn't have the hope of tomorrow. We wouldn't be able to endure the pain of now if we didn't have the secure and confident hope of what God is one day going to do. And so John is like, no, 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 this cannot be. Someone has to open the scroll. But thankfully, the book of Revelation doesn't end there. That's a really good thing. We continue on in verse 5. After no one has been found worthy. John weeps. We get to verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Hello. This is big. This is big. Again, all of history has been pointing to this moment. This elder says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Here we get this image of conquering king. All of the Old Testament prophecies that, that spoke about this conquering king. In John's mind, he's like, I'm about to see it. Let's go. And you would think then as he looks to the throne and sees this, because right now all he has done is heard. He has heard the elder say, those things, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And so you would expect then for when he looks at the throne, you would either see Jesus representing as this roaring lion and all of his power and majesty, or if he's not being represented as a lion, maybe it's Jesus described how he was in chapter one with fire coming out of his eyes and bronze feet and a sword coming out of his mouth, just majestic, powerful Jesus. But what do we see instead? John turns his attention, verse six. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John was expecting a lion, but what he sees instead is a lamb. And here you get this incredible teaching that Jesus is God, the seven horns, the spirits. He's God, and he's standing before the throne, again, not in the form of a lion, but in the form of a slaughtered lamb. And that is so significant. There's so much Old Testament imagery, Old Testament teaching that is then connected and, and tied up in this. And what we see is that not that the lamb is, is slaughtered, laying dead before the throne, but that the, that the lamb with the appearance of being slaughtered, is standing. And that, again, is a really significant detail. So he sees the lamb, and we're going to get into that, but I want to continue on. So now that the lamb has been seen, and that the lamb has approached the throne to say, I am worthy, I will take the scroll, I will make good on all of the promises of God that promise this future reality where God reigns and is with his people, then we see 
all of creation respond. I'm going to read verses 7 through 14. We're going to read quite a bit here, just so we see what happens. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What a scene. And again, all of history, everything has been pointing to this moment. All of creation erupts in worship. You notice how it sort of zooms out. First you have the creatures, then you have the elders, and they're worshiping. They're saying, worthy, worthy, worthy. Last week it was holy, holy, holy. This week it is worthy, worthy, worthy. And it zooms out even further, and you see angels, myriads of myriads, which just means countless numbers of angels worshiping Jesus. And then you zoom out even further, and it says all of creation in heaven and on earth and under the sea worshiping Jesus. makes me think of when Jesus was entering Jerusalem and, and people were throwing down the palm leaves, singing Hosanna, Hosanna, and, and they're really worshiping Jesus. And the Pharisees say, are you going to let them worship you? And he says, look, if they don't worship me, even these rocks will cry out. Creation worships God. That's amazing. Do we? <laughs> and so you see this incredible scene. And then I think the natural question then that I really want to explore with the rest of our time is why is Jesus worthy? Right? What is it that makes Jesus worthy of the worship of the creatures, the elders, the angels, and all of creation? And I think if we can answer that and if we can understand that, that will make a dramatic change in how it is we live our lives, how it is we spend our time, how it is we see the world. And so I think we actually see our answer for this. The Bible always teaches the Bible, one of the most important principles that we can understand. But within the very text, in verses 9 and 10, I think we get what makes Jesus worthy. And of course, we could go in a thousand other places, but I want to stay within the text here because I've already been enough places. It says in verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so let's break that down a little bit. Jesus is worthy of worship because, because why? Because you were slain. Jesus is worthy because he was slain. 
And this is the backwards reality of who Jesus is. In our minds, we think power means conquest. We think power means destroying enemies in a physical battle. And that will happen. But what we see is that Jesus' ultimate power, Jesus' ultimate thing that makes him worthy of the worship of all of creation and all things, and certainly of us, is first and primarily that he was slain. Just so backwards. And so let's dig into that just a little bit. Think about why, why does that make him worthy? Again, I think sometimes we say these things in church and it's we just move on, but I, I just want to know, what could, why is that so important? Well, if you look back once again into the Old Testament, and that's our primary interpretive lens for the book of Revelation, what you see is that in order for people to have access for God, access to God, in order for people to, to be in the presence of God, they had the sacrificial system, and we're probably at least somewhat familiar with that. They had to sacrifice animals in order to be made cleansed or, or in order to, to be viewed as, as righteous before God. And so one of my, the most profound, I think, passages uh, to show that is Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4, say you were a person and you sinned and you had to go to the temple and make purification for your sin. It says this, I'm going to read it on the screen here. It says, if someone brings a lamb as their sin offering, they are to bring a female without defect. They are to lay their hand on its head and slaughter it for a sin offering at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. And so I want you to imagine, church, you have sinned, you've messed up. Nobody's done that, right? Just kidding. This week, so think of the time you sinned this week, okay? You got it? Maybe? Think of the time you sinned this week, and then in order to, to receive forgiveness for your sins, what you had to do is you had to go get your best lamb. It's this blemishless, this perfect, spotless lamb. And you had to take it to the temple. And there's a really key phrase here. Brings the lamb without defect there to lay their hand on its head. And then I want you to imagine you're holding this lamb and then you have to put your hand on its head and maybe you're looking at it in the eye and you're saying, my sin is transferred upon you. You haven't done anything wrong. You're a good lamb, blemishless, without fault. I want you to look in its eyes as it's like, whoa, 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 what's happening here? And you say, my sin on you, knife slit lamb's throat. That's pretty brutal. That's the severity of sin. And that lamb maybe starts to freak out. It starts kicking and screaming. And no, you got to hold it. No, my sin on you, cut. Now I'm forgiven because this lamb died. Jesus is worthy of our worship because he was slain. Do you, do you see that? When Jesus is hanging on the cross as the perfect, blemishless, spotless lamb of God, God is viewing him as righteous. And what we're doing when we say, I believe in Jesus, is we're placing our hand on Jesus' head, we're saying, you die instead of me. And when Jesus' blood is poured out, I'm viewed as righteous because of him. Not because he sinned, but because of my sin. Doesn't that change how seriously we take sin? Maybe some of us this morning are in a place where we're just sort of toying with sin. Saying, well, is it really that big of a deal? Does it really matter that much? Maybe some of us are in denial about a particular sin. We're saying, no, it's, it's not a big deal. Maybe some of us are 
are outright in rebellion, knowingly, willingly sinning. I remember when Maddie and I, my wife, came to that point. It just crushed us. (laughs) It was painful, but it was really good. Considering Jesus as the slain lamb is fundamental. It is central to the life of a Christian. It's an old hymn, right? Was my sin that held him there. Forget the words right now, but you get the idea. (laughs) Right? Our sin holding Jesus on the cross. That's number one, why he is worthy. Number two, Jesus is worthy because he has ransomed people for God. There's two key words here. Number one, ransomed. What does that word ransomed mean? Well, it's this payment that one person makes. The payment was determined by somebody else. So somebody has messed up, right? They're, they're in prison. They're in captivity. They're, they're in this position to ransom someone to say, I'm going to make the payment that, that the person in authority has required so that they become free, okay? And so what was the, what was the ransom What was the request? What was the demand? Well, according to God the Father, it was perfection. And it was then the the blood of Christ. The payment for our removal from the dominion of darkness, which we all belong in our own self, the payment for for the removal of the guilt of our sin can only be the perfect blood of Christ because only Jesus is the Son of God. Only Jesus lived a perfect, righteous life. Only Jesus followed the will of the Father perfectly, and so therefore only Jesus can ransom us, can rescue us from our position of death. Do you see that? And it says, ransomed for God. You see, all throughout the scriptures, what you see is that God is bringing a people to himself. God's chosen nation of Israel in the Old Testament is this representation that God wants to bring a people to himself, this collection of people. And so when it then says ransomed for God, the idea that we get is that as New Testament believers in Jesus, we are the ultimate spiritual Israel. We are the chosen people of God. God wants us, God desires us, God sees us and says, I'm going to bring you to myself for me. You are my chosen possession. Do you see that? Jesus ransomed us for God so that we would belong to the Father. Amazing. Lastly, Jesus is worthy because he is the Savior of the world. And I get this from here. You ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We get this picture of every color every language, every nationality. There is no partiality. There is no racism. There is no judgment based upon where someone grew up, what they look like, how they sound, or their customs. It's about who they have been made to be through Christ. It doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter the color of our skin. What matters is faith in Jesus. And God desires a diverse people for himself. That's one of my prayers for our church, is that we would grow in diversity. I think God has blessed us with economic diversity. I'm really thankful for that. What I'm praying for is that we can be also representative of the people that God is saying here and representative of our community, that we could represent more of the 
population statistics here on a Sunday morning. It would be a blessing because it shows and it points forward to what God is doing, a ransoming, a saving of all people everywhere. And so for the Christian, there is absolutely zero room for racism, for prejudice of any kind. Let's just say that very, very clearly. God has ransomed a people for himself from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And so you get this sort of totality. And again, it was, it was his identity as the Lamb of God that brings all of this about. So that's the central sort of focus of worship in all of heaven and on earth, everywhere. It's the Lamb of God. And so then that brings us, I think, to this question of, okay, well, what about today, right? I always want to try and bring this down to, well, how does this change my day today? How does this change my day tomorrow? How does this change my day on Tuesday when you go back to work, right? Like, how does this actually transform us? And the way I would say it this morning is that, that we, can, we can practice for eternity, which this will be, just worship, which is going to be amazing. We can practice eternity by worshiping today. And, and the way that we can do that is we worship Jesus by following the way of Jesus. Okay? We worship Jesus by following the way of Jesus. Well, what is the way of Jesus? Well, just look at the pattern of his life in the New Testament. If we want to be a people who honor being blood-bought by the Son of God, wouldn't it make sense to live as close as we can, like the Son of God. And we're going to fall short, to be clear. I'm going to fall short. We're never going to be fully holy. We're viewed as righteous. We're viewed as holy. We are justified before God, but we're never going to be fully like Christ until we are glorified with him. It's called a process of sanctification. But all that to say, how did Jesus live his life? The patterns that we see of Jesus are what? Time and prayer. How often did Jesus go off by himself to spend time with the Father? Part of worship, this is just a glimpse, church, on a Sunday morning, this is a glimpse of what worship should be. It is a fraction of the week where we get to gather as the collective body of believers and say, hallelujah, Jesus is great. What's the word say? Let's go live it out during the week. This is not your primary point of worship throughout the week. It should be a highlight, but it should not be the primary and the only point of worship throughout your week. And we worship by praying, spending time alone with God. We worship God by walking in the way of Jesus. Did you notice Jesus is consistently surrounded in community? He has his sort of core three and these disciples, and he has his 12 Jesus existed and walked in community. You're saying, Paul, this is just you trying to get me into life groups again. Correct. That's right. I'm not ashamed to say that. Because I believe it's the pattern of Jesus, that he walked with people. And we, we can't really effectively submit ourselves to Jesus, to place Jesus on the throne of our lives, as we talked about last week, unless we're trying to emulate and live in the way that Jesus called us to live, right? We see Jesus serving incredible ways. We see Jesus being willing to stop what he's doing in the moment to serve someone who came to him with a need. I don't know about you, but one of, sometimes one of the most frustrating things is when I'm doing something and then I get asked something else, it's like, well, no, I was doing this other thing. What do we see Jesus doing all the time? He's going to resurrect Jairus' daughter from the dead, and this woman comes up and she's, she touches his robe and he stops everybody. It's this incredible scene. Like, no, there's urgency here to save Jairus' daughter. And this woman comes up, touches Rome, and he's like, oh, let's talk to her for a little bit, right? Like, he's always willing to stop. Interruptions are often blessings when it comes to Jesus. 
And I think, again, we should emulate the way and the walk of Jesus in that way. I could go on and on, but Jesus, he serves. He gives fully of himself. Everything Jesus is, he gives. Everything we are, what God has entrusted us with in terms of our our talents, our time, and our treasure, we should be willing to say, you know what, I'm just a steward of all of these things that they've been given to me. Here you go, God. And so what I, again, I really want to just challenge us with this morning is, like, how are you worshiping Jesus? <laughs> like, how are you living in light of the future hope of eternity? How are you living in light of what Jesus has done for you? How are you living and honoring the fact that when you said, I believe in Jesus, what you did was you placed your hand on him and said, my sin upon you, Jesus, your life for mine. And so I want to challenge you this morning. How can you take a next step in worshiping Jesus with your whole life, with everything God has given you? To that, let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful for the time together this morning. I'm thankful for your word that teaches us. I'm thankful for how you lead us, God. God, I want to ask this morning that by the power of your spirit, you would very, very clearly give us a next step Maybe this morning we're, we're just living an outright rebellion of sin, and, and God, would you convict us of that? And if we're convicted this morning, would we stand up, walk to the back, and get prayed for this morning? Not to make a, just this big moment, but to say, no, God, I, I'm taking a stand here now this morning to say I've had enough of the sin in my life. I want to worship you, Jesus, by confessing the sin in my life, repenting really walking in the righteousness that you've given me. Maybe for others of us, man, we're just not walking in the way of Jesus in our day-to-day. Yeah, we come to church, praise God, that's great, I'm thankful. But there's so much more in the rest of the week where we can be submitting ourselves to you, Jesus, submitting ourselves to your way. God, would you help us understand that your way is better than our way? I don't have a great plan, but you do, God. I don't know what's best for my life, but you do, God. I don't know where I should go, but you do, God. I don't know how I should invest, but you do, God. Would you reveal that to us by the power of your spirit? And again, would we take steps to say, no, I'm committing to this. I'm going to own this with your ownership over top of it, of course. God, we need you this morning. We love you this morning. Again, continue to lead us as we sing your praises. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.